following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. So you're joining us this morning um, as we're walking through the book of Ruth. Uh, this is our second Sunday. We're taking this one chapter at a time. So we are in the second chapter. Hopefully you grabbed one of these little booklets. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed working through this, uh, using this book. It's been a help for me to just kind of process through and uh, how am I reading it and then what am I learning from it. Uh, this book of Ruth is unique for, for a couple of factors. Uh, one of the main features, though, regarding the book of Ruth is the perspective in which the book is actually written. Few Bible stories are actually told from a woman's perspective. This one not only is written from this perspective, but it also gives us a glimpse into the culture of what would it be like to be a woman in this time. These four chapters of the book of Ruth are, in fact, a very compact love story. Because this book is written in a narrative format, it's written in a story type of format, it's helpful for us to know where we have been. So let's do a quick recap of the first chapter of the book of Ruth. So it begins with verse 1, uh, kind of setting the stage for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This has caused people to uh, react differently than they normally would. We're introduced to a couple of characters within the first chapter. The, the main characters of this book are two women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Both of these women are, in fact, widows, as we remember last week in looking at the first chapter. The first few verses let us know that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, has died, as well as Naomi's two sons, which one of these was Ruth's former husband. With no blood connection here, Naomi releases her daughter-in-laws to go back to their homes, go back to where they are from. Uh, one did, Orpah, but Ruth chooses here to remain with Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth are, are now on this journey. They're heading back to Bethlehem. The text also let us, lets us know how Naomi is feeling at this time. This isn't just simply uh, a history story. But it gives us a glimpse into the emotional uh, and psychological piece of where Naomi is. Naomi is bitter. She's bitter because she feels that God has been bitter to her. We're left at the end of chapter one with a bit of a cliffhanger. They arrive at the time of the barley harvest. Can you feel the tension here? There's a famine. These two women are hungry. They come to a city, and the harvest of barley is just now beginning. Will they survive? Will they find jobs? Will there be new husbands down the road for them? Are they just going to steal until they can make it? What is going to happen to them? There is a tension here. As we feel this tension, let's look towards chapter 2. Uh, the way I'd like to uh, approach this text is uh, I'm going to read through the entire chapter, and then we will walk back through it. Uh, so if you would, just begin with me, Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epith of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with who I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So this is the entirety of chapter 2. It starts with another character being introduced to us, the the character of Boaz. He's of the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's former husband. Let me just pause here really quick. I'm approaching this chapter with uh, literary glasses on. So I'm going to use terms such as character, uh, setting, and story. This does not mean that I believe this is fictional, okay? I fully believe that these events really did take place and that these people were absolutely real. With Boaz, we don't know what clan or what type of clan relationship this actually was. Uh, possibly could be something such as a, a distant cousin of Elimelech. Maybe he was like that guy at the family reunion uh, that you know is related to you somehow, some way, 
but nobody's really quite sure how until you go up to great grandma and she explains, oh yeah, that's so-and-so and they're related to so-and-so. Uh, and by the end of it, you're completely lost and so I have no idea how they're related to you. The author gives us this clan relationship though right here in the very first verse because it's going to be very important later. Notice this very first verse has no purpose within the entire story except to tell us about Boaz. There isn't any connection established yet. If you remove this entire first verse, the story, the narrative makes complete sense. This is written for our good. Hold on to that thought. It will come back a little bit later. So as we continue on, our two protagonists are, are hungry still. Ruth looks at Naomi and says, hey, can I go to the field to glean? And Naomi gives her permission. Gleaning, this is a cultural piece here that we are probably unfamiliar with because we don't live in an agricultural society anymore. Uh, if you would, though, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19, uh, beginning in verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. The book of Leviticus describes what um, being the people of God should look like for the nation of Israel. Uh, in these two verses, we see what to do when you harvest your land. So verses 9 and 10 say this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So when you harvest your land, you end up leaving some. You don't leave it for the, the birds or the animals to come through and pick and to eat, but you leave it for, as the text says, the poor and the sojourner, the foreigner, the traveler. You leave these for the people who are in need. This is the heart of our God. It is not only a New Testament concept, but it, it is an Old Testament concept as well. He cares for the downtrodden. He cares for the weak and for the lowly. He cares for the outcast and the refugee. This wasn't written only for the poor and the sojourner, though. This is also written for the heart of the harvester. It becomes so easy to think that what we have is actually ours. What we have worked so hard for belongs to us. What, have I, what I've devoted myself to is for my own glory. By simply leaving the outer edge, it makes a statement regarding your own heart to God. It speaks to your own heart as a reminder that the harvest only comes because God has allowed it. It declares loudly to God that we are dependent upon him. So Ruth here now goes out and she gleans in the field after the reapers. The visual here is that there are, are workers out in the field gathering up the grain stalks. And whatever is left over, Ruth then is going through and, and gathering up herself. She's taking the leftover table scraps, if you will, to make herself a meal. Most likely, this isn't the best grain. However, it would be more than what she currently has. Ruth now makes her way to the field of Boaz. Can you feel the anticipation growing here? The book is a literary masterpiece. I love the way that the text actually says how she comes to this field. It says that she happened to come. 
She happened to come. Do you remember back whenever I said this book was unique because of the perspective in which it was written? This is one of the clear tellings that it is through the lens of a woman, through the lens of Ruth. It's almost as if she just happened to stumble upon a field that just so happened to belong to a distant relative who just so happened to care for her. The statement is not a statement written from the perspective of God who has not left this encounter up to chance. God knew what he was doing throughout the text of this book and even greater throughout the text of the Bible and to take it to the greatest level even through in your own life. You didn't just happen to come to church this morning. You didn't just happen to be working at the job that you're currently working at or just so happen to have that odd interaction with that friend who just so happens to not know Jesus. God is not a just-so-happened God, but a sovereign and intentional God. Although our text says, it just so happened, this did not catch God by surprise. Take a survey of your own life right now. The events that have occurred to you, both positive and negative, are because God is sovereign and he is intentional. So we have Ruth here. She's out in the field. She's following after these reapers, this group of men, as they are cutting down the grain. Anything that is left over is hers, and she is free to then pick it up. In our society today, we said that the farmer is doing a terrible job. Farming today is much different than the agricultural society that we are entered into within this story. Today, in order for a farmer to make any sort of profit, you better maximize every square inch of your land. Every inch available better yield the maximum, every single piece of grain. During a Ruth's time, though, things are quite different. As she's going about collecting the grain, the field owner, Boaz, he shows up. He greets his workers, and then he, he drives towards the question that we're all hoping he's going to ask. Who is that? His workers tell him this is the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi, he also tells Boaz that she has asked permission to gather. She's been working from the early morning until their conversation here. There are a couple of things to pick out from this section. First, let's look at Ruth. Do you remember back in Leviticus 19 what was required of the poor or of the sojourner? It's nothing. The, the text in Leviticus is written to the harvester. It's written to the farmer, if you will. Yet, Ruth asks for permission still. She goes above and beyond what is required of her. Also, notice the hard-working spirit of Ruth. This is not a dainty woman who is in need of assistance. She's working hard from the early morning of the day, and it says she's only taken one short rest. We'll see a little later that Ruth is taking what God has given her, but she is still required to work. She isn't just sitting back. So we continue and we have our, our first interaction here between Boaz and Ruth. First, his greeting to her is interesting. He calls her his daughter. He says, my daughter. Depending on your view of the situation, it can be uh, one of two things. Either be that he's acknowledging the age difference that is between them. Or he's showing his care and concern for her as a father would. Boaz tells her to stay in his field 
and to stick close with the other young ladies. He also lets Ruth know that he has instructed his male workers not to touch her. He's offering her protection here. In this culture, a single woman was extremely vulnerable. Boaz is stepping in, and notice what he's doing. He's, he's offering more than he is required to. According to the law, once again, he only had to leave the sides of his field and not pick up what he drops. He, though, is meeting her physical need of food here, but he's offering her much more than that. He's offering her safety. Much greater than the food on the table is the emotional and the psychological help that he has just granted her. She's been given a place amongst his people. Ruth here has a natural reaction to his favor. Why? Why are you doing this for me? Don't you know that I'm not one of you? I don't belong to your people. I'm not from here. Boaz responds to her and says that he knows everything that has taken place. He's been clued in on the death of her father-in-law, clued in on the death of her own husband, and that she is now caring for her mother-in-law when she could have gone back to her own family and her own land. Boaz says the, the Lord will repay her for what she has done and that she is under the wings of God to take refuge what an incredible visual picture here of under the wings of God. Boaz is letting Ruth know that because of the love that she has demonstrated to her mother-in-law, that she is under the wings of the Lord. These wings are working themselves out through Boaz. It's ultimately the kindness of Boaz that God is using as his own wings. Ruth here thanks him and once again reminds him that she is not part of his people. Have you noticed this repeating theme here regarding Ruth, both from Ruth's own mouth, as well as from the text, as well as from uh, Boaz's main worker? Ruth, the Moabite woman from Moab, who is not a part of these people, who is a sojourner and a foreigner who does not belong here, there's a theme that carries throughout. The text continues to mention this and to bring this up. It's a predominant theme throughout this book. The one who doesn't belong is in fact welcomed in and given so much more than she actually does deserve. This is both our story in receiving, but also our story in action. Let me first walk through our receiving. We are all sojourners and foreigners who do not belong. You see, our God is holy, and he is righteous, and he is perfect, and we are not. We are born into sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners because of the first sin of Adam. This causes there to be a separation between ourselves and God. We are not worthy to be in the presence of our holy and perfect God. We are foreigners to our God, yet he shows us favor and he shows us kindness, much greater than we deserve. This is also, though, our, our story in action. Without getting political, let's talk about the, the city that we actually do live in here. 
of San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio is full of sojourners and foreigners. From our military installations, people continually moving in on base, to our influx of Californians, to even our neighbors from the South moving up into the United States. Regardless of your views on immigration policy, let me say this, we have a duty to view every single person as an image bearer of God and to treat the sojourner with kindness as Boaz has done to Ruth, as God has done to us. Boaz is such a tremendous character within the story. Look at how he shows care and compassion for Ruth. So far, he's offered her food and protection. He now invites her, though, to eat at his table. He gives her a place and a position that she does not deserve. She is fed the choicest of foods and of drink. She eats until she is satisfied and even reserves some leftovers for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Lunch is finished and her hunger is satisfied completely. Yet, she heads back out into the field. She is not looking at the temporary I am full. She's looking at the long-term game of I have work to do. Boaz here does something, once again, showing his care and his compassion. He instructs his, his guys, his reapers, to drop a little bit of extra. He's once again going above and beyond of what is required of him. He doesn't have to do any of this, but he shows his kindness in these actions to the foreigner. Ruth continues to pick up the grain for the rest of the day and then goes about and beats the grain until it is separate and it is now ready to be used. She's collected what our text says here in verse 17, an epith of barley. Once again, we're given a cultural reference uh, that probably could use some clarification. I don't carry epiths around with me often. So how much is this? How much barley does Ruth collect? Uh, if, if you look back what, what commentators say, the numbers vary. The average of kind of where people would place this would be between 20 and 50 pounds. This is 20 to 50 pounds of grain after she has gone through and she has separated it and beat it. Ruth has just worked all day long collecting the barley, then goes about sifting the grain, and now carries 20 to 50 pounds all the way back home. Ruth is not a slouch. She is a hard-working woman. She heads back home, and Naomi sees this. She sees Ruth carrying this massive amount of barley. We don't know what Naomi's expectations were regarding the amount that Ruth would bring home. This, though, apparently exceeds them. Naomi asks her, where did you get all this from? And Ruth says the name of the man, Boaz. Can you feel this? This is what we've been waiting for. Ruth finally speaks his name. Naomi hears the name and instantly recognizes this man. She also seems to have a change of heart regarding God. If you remember back in the end of chapter one, Naomi is bitter. Here, she seems to have lost her bitterness towards God. Her circumstances have changed. 
What is it about her circumstances that seems so much different though? Maybe Naomi was just extremely hangry at the end of chapter one. And now that she has some food, she is so much better regarding her view of God. Naomi, all you needed was a Snickers. That was, that was the theological problem that you had. In fact, it's so much greater than the morsels of food. This man that Ruth has just mentioned is a relative. We, the, the reader of this, have known this since we first saw the name of Boaz in the very first verse. But this is the first time that Naomi and Ruth have drawn this line between Naomi's husband Elimelech and Boaz. He's a blood relative. Naomi says that he is one of our redeemers. This is odd language for us. I I don't often call any of my cousins redeemers. What does that mean for him to be our redeemer? The book of Ruth often has this phrase associated with it of kinsman redeemer. In fact, it's probably the phrase that you think of most often whenever you think of the book of Ruth. Let's look at this. Let's dive in. What does a kinsman redeemer, who is a kinsman redeemer? So in this culture, it gives Boaz, the relative, the opportunity to fulfill the duty of a number of things, of preserving the name of the dead by marrying Ruth or Naomi. This is the, the literal translation here is to buy back. A kinsman redeemer's responsibility would be these, to avenge the death of a murdered relative, to marry a childless widow of a deceased brother, to buy back family land that had been sold, to buying a family member who had been sent into slavery, and looking after the needy and the helpless members of the family. These are all of the available options here for a kinsman redeemer. We see within the text here that that Ruth actually meets three of these cases with Boaz. He'd be able to marry Ruth, a childless widow. He would be able to buy back the family's land. And he'd be able to look after the needy and the helpless members of the family, both Naomi and Ruth. Can you feel the tension once again within this text? Will Boaz do this? Will he not only offer provision and protection for her over the short term, but will he be with Ruth forever? Will he be her forever kinsman redeemer? This is the suspense that this chapter ends with. We read at the end that Ruth continues gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests and remains with Naomi. The text points us to her immediate needs being met, but we don't know where the story goes from here. It causes us to want to look forward. What is going to happen? Will Boaz come through? This is where our episode of the story of Ruth ends Consider this your teaser, if you will, for next week. As we wrap up our time in the second chapter of Ruth, though, I want to go back and make some some points of application regarding this story, of, of what we actually see within the text. So far, we've been focused on the story of Ruth and of Naomi and of Boaz. This book was not written for their sake, though, but this book was written for ours. 
I'd love to look at each person within this text to see what lessons can we learn. We're looking at the three P's of Ruth, chapter two. The provision, the providence, and the protection from God. Let's first begin with Boaz. So when looking at Boaz, I'd like to point out a few things. The first, we've mentioned it a number of times, the care and the compassion that Boaz has. Boaz could have given Ruth exactly what Leviticus asks of him, but instead he goes above and beyond what is required of him. Depending on the translation that you had, as I read verse one, it might have been a little bit different than your reading of verse one. The ESV, the English Standard Version, which is what I'm using this morning, says that Boaz was a worthy man. Other translations choose to say not that he was worthy, but that he was wealthy. I would say that both are most likely true. We see his wealth based upon the fields, the number of workers he has at his disposal, and we see his worth in how he looks upon his own wealth. Notice something important with Boaz. He is completely selfless in his actions. He has an understanding that the field in which he works is not his own. And the harvest that he gets is also not his own. The text of Leviticus is not simply a box to be checked for Boaz. But it's a text which drives him towards his own heart. Concerning what does belong to him. What has God blessed you with today? Is it held in a tight fist or is it held with an open hand? Oftentimes, when we say things like this, our first inclination is to think about finances. We often go towards money first when we, we talk about what we have been given and the idea of holding it with a tight fist and, and having an open hand with it. So let me go there and not avoid it. Uh, Dave Ramsey, who is a financial coach that, coach that many of you are probably uh, familiar with or have heard his name, says this. He says, the fist is an intention, international sign of anger. The open hand is a gesture of invitation and acceptance. Some people think that if they clutch those dollars tightly enough, never giving, they're on the path to wealth. The real world teaches the opposite is true. The idea of holding money with an open hand might seem to violate common sense. We feel that if we don't hold on tightly to our money and our relationships, it will slip away. When you give, you open yourself up. Giving works because it is in your personal blueprint to be a giver. Giving lifts, lifts us out of ourselves. We take our eyes off our rights, our problems, and our stuff. This new view gives us renewed vision, renewed vision and hope. I think it's important for us to evaluate our generosity with our finances. I don't say this because the church is in debt and things are bad. I'm not saying this because the church needs your dollars. I'm saying this because God calls us to be generous. To look outside of the giving of dollars, God calls us to give of ourselves even more. We live in a society that, is, that selflessness is so foreign and so rare. To place someone else before yourself seems odd and weird. Do you struggle with placing anyone else, including God, into the position of greatest value? 
Do you want to know how we are identified by the world? It's by the way that we love. If we look at John chapter 13, verse 35, it is our love for one another that lets the world know that we are his. It's really hard to love one another with a closed fist and a love of only self. Be a Boaz. Love radically. Evaluate your own field. Is there margin at the edges? Or do you try and get the absolute most from every square inch for yourself? Another thing that Boaz teaches us is to give a seat at the table to those who do not belong there. Boaz invites the Moabite to sit with him and his people at the table. She isn't pushed to the kids' table. Did you have a kids' table growing up? I know in our family, we've always had the kids' table. Uh, It's all of the adults are at the really nice table, and the kids' table is either the card table uh, that you've pulled out of the garage, and there's more cobwebs than actual surface to eat upon. I remember the feeling of sitting at the kids' table and desiring to be at the big table. First, are you currently making space at your table? Or is your table full? What would it take for you to add another chair? I'm not speaking about your physical table, but at the same time, I am. The gospel comes with a house key, this book right here. It's a book that we have featured. Uh, We have a book of the month that we feature every single month. This one was featured back in January. Uh, It has impacted me in a great way. As you can see, I have two copies up here. I'm not going home with these. One of you will be leaving. Two of you will be leaving with these books. Uh, It is a book that has impacted me and the way that I see my neighbors, both my physical neighbors that live around me as well as my neighbors. Maybe it's time to invite a neighbor over for some food at your table. Don't forget that you also have an invitation at a table in which you do not belong. We are told that we will one day recline at the table and feast with Christ. You do not deserve to recline at that table, friend. The only way you were given a seat is because God first reached down from heaven and sent his son. Be a Boaz. God has provided for Boaz. And Boaz has in turn provided for Ruth and for Naomi. Be a Boaz. Let's take a look at what we can learn now from Naomi. I mentioned it earlier, but Naomi seems to have a change in her attitude uh, towards God between the chapter one Naomi that we see and the chapter two Naomi that we see. She goes from being bitter about the way that God has dealt with her to saying that God's kindness has not forsaken her. What is it that has actually changed within Naomi? Her hope is what has changed. At the end of chapter one, she was without hope. At the end of chapter two, once again, she has hope. Things were looking terrible for her at the end of one. Naomi was like the female version of Job. She lost everything. Yet, in one chapter, we're introduced to the glimmer of hope. Have you ever been in a season without hope? I found so much relatability with the the person of Naomi at the end of chapter one. 
when I go through tough, comparatively tough seasons, I oftentimes forget where my hope is. And I forget the truths of God. Even when my hope is lost, his love for me is ever true and ever faithful. It is in these circumstances that we all need to be reminded to look up and to behold our Savior. Are you currently in a season of bitterness? Does the story of Naomi chapter 1 ring more true for you than the story of Naomi chapter 2? Whether it's a short season or has turned into a part of who you are and a part of your life, may you right now look up and find hope that is in Christ, the Christ that has come and the Christ that will once again come. As Naomi has said in verse 20, Boaz is one of our redeemers. I believe she's pointing towards the physical redeemer of Boaz, as well as she's cluing us into the spiritual redeemer. Boaz is one, she says, meaning that there is another possible relative out there who could redeem them. But also, there is one coming who will redeem us all. This redeemer is Christ. He has redeemed us from our sin and our shame. He has taken what is lost and he has made it found. He's taking what is broken and making it whole. This is the providence of God. God hasn't happened to stumble upon you and see you. He has knit you together and knows every hair upon your head. I feel that the older I get, the easier that becomes for God to do, that he can count the hairs upon my head, even when there's nothing left but a horseshoe of hair. The providence of God still remains. Let's now look towards Ruth. What can we learn from Ruth and her circumstances and her reactions to her own situation? I once heard a wise man sitting to my left, Mr. Herbert, say these words to me. When I don't understand his hands, I have to trust his heart. When I don't understand his hands, I have to trust his heart. This is the story of Ruth. Ruth can't see the outcome. She hasn't read chapters three and chapters four of her own book. Ruth hasn't, hasn't seen this. I'm, I'm sure Ruth doesn't understand what the hands of God are doing. She's hungry. She's left her family to be with her mother-in-law. Her, her mother-in-law, did you get her mother-in-law? She now finds herself working extremely hard for both of them. The hands don't make sense. When you find yourself in life with a, a difficult hand being dealt to you, in the midst of that trial and that circumstance, trust his heart. He has been faithful to you before and will continue to be faithful It is in these moments when the sovereignty of God is often most difficult to see. It's rather easy to declare that God is sovereign and in control of all things when things are going well for me. The sovereignty of God does not change when things are not going well for you. God has shown his protection over Ruth. This protection isn't all physical. He has protected her for even what is to come. There's one coming from the line of Ruth that will offer all three of these things. He will offer provision. He will offer providence. And he will offer protection. This morning, let us look to Christ.
Will you pray with me? Our God and our Father, Lord, I thank you for the book of Ruth. Father, I thank you for the, the people of Boaz and of Naomi and of Ruth. And Father, how there is a cultural difference between us and them, yet the story is so relatable. Father, I pray that as we look towards your, your law, your commandments of what you have required to us, that it will not be simply a checkbox, Father. Lord, but that this would be, Father, the baseline. Lord, that we would love like you have loved. Father, we pray for those who have the spirit of bitterness as Naomi did. Father, I pray that they would look up and behold you. Father, I pray that their hope would be found in your son and him alone. Father, as we are all sojourners and foreigners, Father, we thank you for Christ. Father, because of his sacrifice, we are given a seat at the table. Father, we yearn for that day where one day we will feast with you. Lord, may we look at the text of Ruth and may it impact our hearts. Father, may it change how we see ourselves, how we see you, and how we see our neighbors. Father, we thank you for the cross. It is in Christ's name that we pray.